Good morning, Grand Point. Oh, my goodness. The power of the name of Jesus. Aren't you glad that it's not about us, that it's all about him? I am so glad to be here this morning. I want to welcome our online community. Good morning. God bless you. Thank you for everyone that you chose Grand Point to be your place of worship this morning. Uh, we are kicking off a series. We're starting a series this morning. The people that God uses. Man, this is, this is going to be great. I tell you what, I am so thankful that God uses me, uh, even though I've made mistakes, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of my imperfections, God chooses to use me. And we're going we're gonna to see throughout this series that God uses people that are just, that make messes. Amen? And so um, I have the opportunity to introduce a brother, my friend. Uh, he, if you look in, if you don't have a book, by the way, make sure you grab one of these out at the hub so that you can see through the summer series of all the speakers that we're going to have. So this morning, uh, my brother serves as a director of the weekend engagement here at Grand Point at this Chambersburg campus. And uh, not only is he a wonderful husband to his wife, Amanda, but he's an amazing father to his daughter, Grace, Zoe, and Emma. And I get the opportunity to introduce to you Pastor Dan Culbertson. Will you give him a hand as he brings, comes up here and shares the word? Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we all doing today? I'm going to start things off by asking an uncomfortable question. How many of you have messed up families? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. I get it. You're going to out yourself in front of the people sitting next to you. But I think a lot of us probably think that, right? Sometimes we think we have messed up families. I wish I could tell like one of the hundreds of stories that I have, but I love my family too much to put them through that this morning. So instead, I decided to rewind to a more distant family member, one that's not going to care because he hasn't lived in, since the late 1700s. So it's been a while. I don't think he's going to care when I start talking about him. But my distant ancestor was named Alexander Culbertson. And Alexander Culbertson shouldn't be confused with his grandfather, who was a military hero who died at the Battle of Sidling Hill trying to rescue some folks who had been taken by some Native Americans. He's not to be confused with that Alexander Culbertson because this Alexander Culbertson was known as Devil Alex. Yes, that's a great nickname to pick up, right? Devil Alex. Well, the reason why he had this nickname is first and foremost, he started a distillery and as a good Presbyterian boy, you don't start distilleries. So that's the first reason why they called him Devil Alex. He started his distillery, what is now known as Stillhouse um, Hollow over in South Mountain. That, that was him. Uh, he's the one that started that one. Uh, that's not the only reason why he's called Devil Alex. The man was reported to be seven feet tall with bright red hair and had a penchant for leaving in the middle of the night to go participate in fisticuffs. In other words, he wandered into town in Chambersburg in the middle of the night and started fights for fun. So, Devil Alex gained his reputation pretty, uh, pretty honestly. The family drama must have been pretty heavy back then, and the mess must have been pretty heavy, because when Devil Alex's father passed away, he gave every one of his kids an inheritance. So all of the kids received $400 out of the estate, which back then was a substantial amount of money. That is, except for Devil Alex. Devil Alex only received $4. <laughs> 
So you can tell there was a little bit of drama and a little bit of mess that existed in their family. Well, luckily, the extracurricular activities of my long-lost great-uncle um, are not the reason why we have messes in our family today by any means, but I think a lot of us can relate to the reality that sometimes our families are strange and sometimes they have messes. Well, sometimes that messiness, though, leads us to a place where we start to think and believe that God can't use us, that God won't use us. Sometimes we think our lives are just a little bit too screwed up, and so God's not going to use us. Well, today, we're kicking off this series, as Pastor Mike had said, The People God Uses. And in this series, we are going to look at how God uses ordinary, messed up people to do extraordinary things to bring himself glory. Oftentimes, God uses the most unlikely people to be able to accomplish what he wants. I think one of the most beautiful things about the way in which God chose to speak to us through his word is through these stories of people who just can't seem to get it right. Yet still, they're the people God uses. They're the people that God does incredible things through. Today, we're going to be looking at King David because David is one of these messed up people. He has messed up family situations, and yet God uses him in extraordinary ways. Before we dive into this story, I think we need to look at the reason why we're going to talk through this story that we're looking at today for David. Because I think that all of us can probably relate to where the tensions are that we're living with today. In today's world, with everything that's been going on and all the tensions that we face. I think this past year has probably stretched me more than what I realize in my internal thinking when it comes to other people. I think sometimes the way in which I view other people has been colored so much by what has happened in the world in this past year. And I know probably some of you feel the same way. I think my theory for this is we've spent so much time viewing people through very small windows. We've been seeing people through our online devices, through social media. We've been seeing people through the 24-hour news networks. And because of that, we only ever see certain parts of people. And a lot of times, those parts that we see are the most polarized parts of people. And so, because of that, we tend to respond by jumping to conclusions about people. We form opinions about other people. And in general, we tend to not think very highly of people because of this tension. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting there thinking, I have no clue what you're talking about. I think wonderful things about everybody all the time. I want you to stop for a second and think about somebody you disagree with. Think about somebody that you disagree with. Maybe it's on something political. Maybe it's on something ideological. Maybe it's something that has to do with your faith. Just think of someone you disagree with. Now, how does that make you feel? Is the first thought you have and the first emotion you have a positive one? I'm willing to bet it probably isn't. My guess is you're probably thinking something pretty negative. I know my patience level has been stretched. I know I have been dealing to this place that I have grown thin with other people. And though it doesn't often impact the way that I act towards other people, I know it does impact the way I think. But God's desire is for us to love other people, period. To love other people. To view people the way that he views people. Unfortunately, I think we've all grown weary to this place where we're not actually loving people most of the time. Even if you're not acting on your thoughts, I think the old adage is true. It's the thought that counts. 
I think Jesus is more concerned with the motivations of our heart than he is with the things that we do. Today, we're going to take a look at what happens to our own motivations and our views of other people when instead of jumping to these conclusions and choosing to take these snap judgments of people, instead of doing that, allowing God's love to be the center of who we are and allow that love to transform our hearts towards the people around us, the people that we interact with on a daily basis. The incredible thing that we get to see today is that it doesn't matter how messed up or how far gone we might feel, God still wants to use us. God still wants to use you. And he wants to be the center of our lives. And in turn, he wants us to point other people into a relationship with him. Today, we are going to be looking at a pretty big chunk of text. We are looking at 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19. I'm putting the reference up here for you guys so you can jot it down. I, I encourage you, take some time to read this because we're not going to be able to read the whole thing. You guys are getting the Cliff Notes version today, which is still a bit of a, a, a ride. So you might want to buckle up a little bit because we've got a bit of a story here to go through. In fact, this story sounds like something that comes out of today's media, some, some television show or movie that we watch. And I know none of you good Christian people have seen Game of Thrones, but that's what this story is like. It is just like that story because it's graphic. It's full of betrayal, political manipulations, crazy twists, murders, vying for the crown. All of these tensions exist within this story. And today, we're going to be looking at a story from King David. Pastor Lawrence asked me to pick one of my favorite Bible characters to kick this series off. He's asked everyone who's speaking throughout the summer to do the same. And the first choice I had was taken already. Um, so I went with an easy second for me, King David. Because King David has always been one of my favorite fi figures in Scripture because King David is constantly referred to as a man after God's own heart, yet he still massively fails. And he messes up all of the time. He lives with so many messed up situations in his life. And I think that's incredibly reassuring. Because I think so many of us can see through David that it doesn't matter how messed up our lives are. God can and will use us. He wants relationship with us. How many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Yeah, most of the room, I think most people are probably familiar with David and Goliath. How many of you are familiar with David and Bathsheba? That's, that's another one. Yeah, most of us. How about David and Absalom? Yeah, a lot less hands. A lot less hands. This is a story we don't talk about very often, but this is a story about family drama, family tension, and catalogs a bunch of David's mess-ups, a bunch of failures that David has. This story takes place after David has been ruling Israel for some time. So David has been king for a little while, and he's had quite a few sons. Absalom was his third son. So he's the third oldest son in this family. Um, he, he may actually be the second oldest son alive because we don't hear much talked about his second son after it says his son was born, and that's, that's pretty much all we hear. But Absalom cares very deeply for his sister. So Absalom and his sister are really close, but his older brother, Amnon, claims to love his sister to the point where he steps out of line and ends up violating his sister. And Absalom is rightfully furious. 
He is completely enraged by this. And King David was angry as well. In fact, Scripture says in chapter 13, 21 of 2 Samuel, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So Amnon, David's oldest son, has done this terrible thing. But David does nothing. David the king, seemingly either out of love for his son or whatever, even though he's mad about the situation, doesn't do anything to handle it. It's one of his first failures we see in this story. Well, Absalom, because his dad doesn't do anything, decides to set in motion a plan for revenge, to get back for his sister. And so, two years later, so he worked on this plan for a while. Two years later, Absalom hosts a festival, this annual festival celebration, and he invites David, along with all of his brothers, to come to this festival. Well, David declines. He kind of pulls the whole family thing whenever we have to go meet with that crazy uncle or crazy aunt that we don't really want to see. Oh, I just don't want to impose. I I don't really want to be a bother to you. It's going to be too much. I, I don't think we can go. But because he wants him to come so bad, Absalom says, okay, if you can't make it, all right, but send Amnon and the rest of my brothers. They can come in your place. They can celebrate in your place. And so David finally caves and says, sure, why not? They can go party instead. And so that's what they do. They all get together. They start having this party. And after the party goes on for a while, Amnon starts to lose a little bit of his faculties and Absalom springs his trap. All of his servants cave in. They kill Amnon and Absalom takes off and runs and hides in exile. David is misinformed about this situation. He is told that all of his sons are killed in this whole situation. Absalom killed them all. And so he is so distraught, he cannot be consoled. Eventually, someone comes along and says, actually, that's not what happened. It was just your oldest son, which obviously stole a heartbreak. And it says that David still mourns. But then scripture says this in in chapter 13, verse 39, says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. See, I think David regretted not doing anything about what happened earlier. And now it's been taken care of. He doesn't have to worry about it. But now his next son becomes a failure because David does nothing about his son who just murdered his other son. And Absalom stays on the run for three years. He's in exile for three years. Joab, recognizing what's going on and recognizing that Absalom's now technically next in line for the throne, says, David, you need to forgive your son. You need to allow him to come back. You need to allow this whole thing to be fixed. And David's like, no, don't want anything to do with that. So Joab creates this nice scheme. He does this whole huge plot, which you can read about if you dive into the chapter. And through this plot, he convinces David to finally forgive his son. David chooses to forgive his son, but only partly. He forgives him to the point where he he is allowed now to return to Jerusalem and be in the city, but David refuses to see his son. So for another two years, whether it's because of some sense of personal justice or maybe it's a hope that his son will come and repent for what he has done, David refuses to see Absalom. Absalom remains in the city for another two years without David seeing him. And people are coming to David all the time. They're bragging about him. Man, your son is so awesome. Everybody loves him. He is so handsome. He's got this beautiful long hair. They brag over him all the time in hopes that the disconnect will be broken down. 
Well, Absalom gets tired of waiting for David to respond, so he decides to light one of Joab's fields on fire in order to get David's attention. It's funny, I, I heard a sermon once about the importance of forgiving your kids, especially your teenage kids, all the way whenever you're raising them, because if you don't forgive your kids all the way, there's a high likelihood they might light something on fire to get your attention. <laughs> I think that's what happened here. <laughs> Except apparently the reconciliation that comes because of this, David finally makes up with his son, was a little too little too late. Absalom, frustrated by everything, starts gathering support from the people who are disenfranchised by David. He starts this rally call, a rally cry about how terrible David is, and most of Israel finally gets behind that. And they decide to try and overthrow it. David sees what's going on. He's forced to flee with the people that are faithful to him. And now he is in exile himself out in the wilderness. I think if David would have acted with Absalom instead of sitting on the fence, whether he acted out of love and forgave his son fully, or whether he acted out of justice and brought him the punishment he deserved, the whole situation probably would have been avoided. But instead, David refuses to act. Imagine being King David in this situation. Your oldest son has violated your daughter. Your next son has killed that son. And now you've got to deal with all this tension. I'm sure that makes Thanksgiving dinner a little bit awkward. You've finally been convinced to forgive your son after all of the stuff that has happened. But the hurt of the whole situation, all the tensions you felt, all the frustration keeps you from fully reconciling with your son. But your love for your son keeps you from punishing him as well. So now here you are, sitting on the fence. People are trying to convince you that your son is a good guy, that you should reconcile with him, you should forgive him. And finally, after two years in one burning field, you choose to reconcile, and what does your son do? He overthrows your kingdom. He takes over. He sends you in exile. He seeks to kill you. How do you think you'd feel in this situation? Betrayed? You know, I'd feel like a failure as a parent. You'd be feeling all kinds of tensions, maybe some anger, wanting some revenge, maybe some depression, because life is not going the way you hoped it would. How do you think this would make you feel towards God, especially since God promised you this kingdom, and now the kingdom is actively trying to kill you? I think it's easy for me to think that I would probably fall into a negative space internally. I'd probably fall into this place where I'd start to blame other people. Well, if they would have just done this, maybe I'm getting angry with the world around me. Well, luckily, we don't really have to guess a whole lot of what David was thinking, because David was a prolific songwriter. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to know people who write a lot of music. I've had quite a few friends that do, and I've actually gotten the chance to meet some relatively famous people that write songs too all the time. And it's funny when your interactions with them, they kind of turn everything into a song. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You may be having a conversation and they grab a phrase and they do 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 and they start singing the song around you. Like they start to figure out music while you're talking to them. I think it's phenomenal. It's such a cool thing for me to see. I'm sure it's super irritating for normal people. Um, <laughs> but in the middle of talking these situations, they're always writing music about everything they see. And that's kind of what I think David was like. In fact, the book of Psalms is mostly songs written by David and some others, but David has written a lot of songs about worshiping God, and a lot of them are informed by the situations that he finds himself in. 
So David wrote a few songs during this time of his life. He wrote some songs that explain what he was feeling, what he was going through, and the situations around him. Psalm 3 is one of these. We're not going to have time to dive into that today, but Psalm 63 is one that we are going to look at. Because I want to look at this psalm, because David's focus, even when his world's a complete mess, David's focus, even when he's failed terribly, even when his life is in danger, his focus is on God. And his focus is on worshiping God, even in the middle of all this chaos. Take a look at what Psalm 63 says. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Look closely at what the song is saying. He's saying, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. David, even when he's on the run, even in the middle of crazy family drama, Even when the world is against him, even when this inevitable showdown with his son is coming, he recognizes not vengeance, not hate. He doesn't whine about his situation. He doesn't talk about how unfair everything is. He focuses on God. And he looks at God and recognizes him as the one who sustains him. He focuses on worship. He focuses on worship to the point that when this psalm ends, he declares that God's going to take care of his enemies. God's going to shut up the mouth of the liar. He doesn't seek vengeance. He doesn't even try and correct the people who are telling these stories about him that are leading all of the people to join Absalom. He recognizes God's going to take care of that. He first and foremost thanks God for his provision. And then he leans into the sustenance provided by God. Not just the physical but his very life, his soul, the sustenance that's provided by God's love. The response that comes from David when this is the center of his heart is your steadfast love is better than life. And that love then leads him to love other people, even the people that wronged him. The next few chapters of 2 Samuel describe a bunch of different interactions David has while he's on the run. And one of these interactions is an interaction that he has with a member of Saul's family. Saul was the king that David took the kingdom from. When Saul dies, that's when David takes over the kingdom. God ordained him to be in charge at that point. And one of Saul's relatives, Shimei, starts throwing rocks at David when he sees him. He's cursing him. He's going after him. And David, instead of seeking retribution, chooses to 
move on. To move on in love. In fact, when all the people around David are saying, do you want us to take care of this guy? He's nothing but a dog. We can take care of him in a second. David goes, no, leave him alone. Who knows? Maybe his curses are actually coming from God. I mean, my own son wants to kill me. See, David chooses to act in love towards Shimei instead of seeking retribution. Well, at this point in the story, there's a ton of crazy spy drama that goes on. There's all these little ins and outs of political manipulation happening. In fact, an advisor gets ignored by Absalom, and he's so disgraced by that, he runs off and hangs himself. It's a crazy story. You, you really need to spend some time reading this. But David finally decides, at the, this point, I'm going to stand up against the army of Israel. So he takes the people that are faithful to him, and he decides that they are going to face this army, and they are going to take the kingdom back. But even in that, he chooses to act in love. He tells the generals, I don't want you to hurt Absalom. I don't want him dead. The guy who has overthrown the kingdom, who has sought after his life, is trying to kill him, has turned the entire nation against him. David says, don't hurt him. David responds in love. Well, unfortunately, one of David's generals didn't listen very well. And when Absalom's retreating from the battle, his long, beautiful hair that they bragged about earlier gets caught in a tree branch, and he gets stuck. I actually heard someone say once, this is a, this is a sign on why long hair is so sinful and you shouldn't have it. Um, I don't buy that, but Absalom gets caught up in the tree by his hair, and because of that, one of the generals, Joab, kills him. Once again, David's failed. See, David should have led the armies. But he allows his generals to talk him out of it. They're like, oh, no, 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 you're too important. you got to go hide in the back. But David knew he was supposed to lead that. And if he had been leading the armies, he would have been present and Absalom wouldn't have been killed. But even then, once Absalom is killed, David continues to show his love. He mourns over his son. He mourns to the point where the generals actually come to him and say, hey, David, you should cut it out because you're mourning for the enemy a lot more than you're mourning for the people who died fighting for you. They're all going to leave you. David acts in love even in that situation. See, David's whole story shows, and not just this piece, the story from beginning to end where we get to see this pictures, these pictures of David, he shows that even when placed in situations that are insane, even when he's in situations where he fails terribly, he responds in a way where he turns to God, is re-centered in his relationship with God, and then allows that relationship to dictate the way he acts moving forward. This is why I believe that David is so often referred to as a man after God's own heart. Because even when he messes up, even when everything around him has gone completely insane, even when he fails, like refusing to act, like refusing to reconcile with his son soon enough, when the consequences hit David, his response is to turn to God. His response is to grow closer to God and then respond out of God's love. In truth, I think there's so many lessons, there's so many principles that we could pull out of this. If we would have read the whole thing, it would have been like a 13-week sermon series, I think, on its own. And I think when we take an honest look at ourselves, we look at our families, we look at the truth that all of us have mess, all of us have failures, all of us have fallen short. I think that the biggest takeaway that we can see is that God can use any one of us, especially when we come to the point of recognizing 
that God's love is our very sustenance. When we recognize that God's love is what sustains us. God's love is what carries us through everything that we face in life. David says, your steadfast love is better than life. The only way that we are ever going to get carried through the stuff in life that really hurts, the stuff that's really hard, the stuff that should tear us apart, the only way to be carried through that is by relying on the power of God and his love at work in our lives. We need to recognize God's love in our lives, and we need to do that by being in relationship with him, by growing closer to him. I've said this so many times when teaching youth. It's a little bit ridiculous to claim to love somebody that you have no clue who they are. It'd be like walking up to someone in the grocery store that you've never met before and confessing your undying love to them. In order to really, really dig in and love people, we need to know who they are. And to love God, we need to know who he is. We need to grow in relationship to him. David is able to see God's love because he spends time with God. For us, the only way for us to have that relationship, the only way for us to grow close in a relationship with God is by having a relationship with Jesus. It's only by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he has been raised from the dead that you will be saved. Romans 10.9. The only way back into a right relationship with God is through the sacrifice that God made by sending his son to die on the cross so that the sin that separates us from relationship with God, all of our our junk in our lives that keeps us from being in contact with the creator of the universe can be forgiven because of the sacrifice that Jesus made to take on the punishment that every single one of us deserves. The only way back in a relationship with God is through a relationship with his son. And in order to live in that love wholly, we have to grow deeper in that relationship. We can't just be okay with the starting point. We have to seek deeper relationships with him. Here, we try and offer some opportunities for that. We have our next step circle, which allows you to understand the very beginning of that conversation, being able to understand why do we follow Jesus? What is this whole thing about? We have circles where you can connect with other people, and you have the opportunity to discuss God and Jesus and life together and walk it out together and carry each other as you go. And nothing, I think, can beat the time in the secret place, the time where we spend private time with God, seeking to understand him better, allowing him to speak into our lives, help us understand the things that we are falling short in so that we can grow closer to him and allow the Holy Spirit to transform everything that we do. And when we learn that God's love is what sustains us, it should drive us to love the people around us. Even when those people raise up nations to chase us into exile, even when those people are actively trying to kill us, you know, that kind of situation kind of makes some of our ridiculous little political divisions and ideological divisions and all these little things seem silly, doesn't it? We need to learn to love people the way that God loves people. Loving people you disagree with and loving people who hate you and people who hurt you is hard. In fact, it may be impossible. 
without the love of God actively in our lives. God's love is what makes it possible for us to love the people who feel unlovable. God's love is the very thing that drives us to love the people that are hard to love in our lives. And when we start loving the people around us that we would consider enemies, that's when the rest of the world looks at us and are able to see Jesus in us. They look at the way we love the world and they go, something is wrong with you. That person just slapped you in the face and you in turn are showing them love. What's up with that? How did you get there? It's only through the power of Jesus. It's only through the power of God's love. So how do we practically live this out? How do we get to the place in our day-to-day lives where we can live this thing out? Because I can hear the excuses in my own inside voice. I hear the things that I know I would say to myself. You don't realize how bad that person hurt me. You don't realize what they did. You don't realize how awful their opinions are. You don't realize the way they voted. You don't realize the things they say on Facebook every day. But here's what I know. None of us deserve the love and the forgiveness and the life that God has offered us through his son. None of us. But if God is willing to send his son to die so that we can have an open path back into a relationship with him, then I think we can deal with some hurt feelings. I think we can deal with some frustrating opinions. I think we can deal with some challenging people. We need to learn to love other people out of this outpouring of God's love. Now, I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're in a tough spot. Maybe you're in a place where you're battling somebody. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's just an acquaintance. Maybe just your life is in a rough situation. I think so many people have been hit so hard in so many different ways through this season. Maybe you're in the middle of a battle with something like depression. Maybe you're trying to figure out how to walk out just day to day. Whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever you're facing, the love of God can help carry you through. Not only that, but the love of God will also place other people in your life that can help you work through the things that you are fighting through, the tensions that you have. We're probably not going to be able to figure this out on our own. But the love of God can help provide a means for us to be sustained. So my challenge to you this week, as we leave this place, make some time to spend with God this week. Spend some time with him. Ask him to speak into your life. Show him, or have him show you the ways in which you are not loving the people around you. Ask him to reveal his love to you in a way that you cannot help but walk away changed. Find the people that you're not loving and then do it. Now I know that that can seem kind of big, seem all-encompassing. Find the people that you're, you have disagreeing viewpoints on. Have conversations. Be civil. Hear each other out. Learn from each other. But stand on God's word. 
Allow his truth to be the thing that guides you into loving the people around you. And you know, if you've never gotten to the place where you've actually begun a relationship with God, you don't even know that you have an open line to talk to him. If you're sick of the way in which the world feels day in and day out, you're sick of being beat up, you're sick of all of those frustrations, recognize that you need to begin a relationship with Jesus. That he desperately wants to have a relationship with you. It's not going to fix all of your problems, but it'll give you the strength to be carried through them. If you're at that place today where you haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, please, 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 please come talk to me. Come have a conversation with me. If you don't want to talk to me because I'm big and scary, you can head to the prayer room. It's in the doors right outside the sanctuary to the left. We've got people in there that would love to have this conversation with you. They would love to walk you through what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Because if you begin a relationship with Jesus, your life will be changed. And in turn, the people around you will begin to be changed by the love of God working through you. I think many of us probably feel like our lives are too messed up for us to be used by God. But King David forms the nation of Israel in such a way that they reach this amazing place of prosperity through his son Solomon. God does amazing things through him, and David was used not because he was perfect, but because he learned to rely on the love of God. And he chose to be obedient to him. God can use any one of us for the great things such as this, when we choose to allow his love to be the thing that guides us. When we choose to allow his love to sustain us and in turn love the world around us. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just come before you humbled by the reality that you want to use a person like me that you want to use a person like all of us, that you desperately want relationship with every single one of us, and you want us to be used to transform the world around us. Father God, I pray that today, as we are together in this place, that you move in our hearts. You show us the places where we have been falling short in loving your people. Teach us to go. Teach us to love Teach us to stand for your truth. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you that you have brought us to this place at this time. And Father, as we continue in worship, Lord, keep speaking into our lives, speak into our hearts. Help us to experience you. We pray all these things in your name.